1: When you think of NASA, odds are you're thinking of launching rockets into space and landing people on the moon. Well, they do a lot more than that. My next guest is not a rocket scientist or an astronaut, but she's a valuable member of NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center as a landslide researcher and disaster response coordinator. Dr. Dahlia Kirschbaum focuses on rainfall-triggered landslides, with some being seen in the Caribbean and Central America during hurricane season. And we are in the midst of hurricane season right now. Dahlia, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast.
0: Thanks. It's exciting to be here. Yeah,
1: no, this is really neat because I know all the cool things that you do at NASA. And just for the listener, a brief introduction, NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center is one of several space centers that NASA has. I know when I worked there at NASA Goddard for 12 years, people would say, oh, you're at Kennedy Space Center or you're at Houston. No, I was at Goddard Space Flight Center, uh, which is one of the key centers for earth science research. And and Dahlia is a research physical scientist in the hydrological sciences lab at Goddard. So- So before we get into all the really cool weather and landslide and GPM satellite mission things, Dahlia, tell us a little bit about how you got into the field you're in and became a scientist.
0: Sure, I would love to. So I grew up in Minnesota, and while we have some disasters there, extreme weather, tornadoes, and flooding, um, we didn't really see a whole lot of extreme hurricanes, for example. Um, When I was in high school, I went on a trip with my parents to Florida, and I was walking along the beach, and I heard, and we saw a storm coming in right off the coast, those extreme ones. And I remember that in school we learned that for every five seconds after you see lightning and you hear the thunder, it's about a mile away. And so I was so excited to learn that something where you can combine math, which I was very passionate about, with science and a real-world application to really tell us when we should run for cover. So that kind of kept in my brain. And fast forward to college, I was in my second semester freshman year, and I sat through a survey course on environmental issues. And so I was on the edge of my seat every single day listening to the professor talk about things like whether paper versus styrofoam was a better option for the environment um, and how we can understand beach erosion and tornadoes. And so that really piqued my interest in science because of math and the ability to combine it with real world applications to help society.
1: Wow, that's really fascinating. And it's consistent with what I hear from scientists that we have on Weather Geeks all the time, just those early experiences in the K through 12 age range. So very consistent. Now, You're at NASA, and I I worked at NASA for 12 years, so I'm familiar with the question that I'm about to ask you. Meteorologists get asked all of the time if we deal with meteors. Do you as a person at NASA, as a scientist, get asked all of the time about the space program and uh, why you're at NASA as studying the Earth? Do you get that question? And what is your response?
0: All the time. And I think one of the things that people don't realize is that NASA studies all planets. We, It's critical for us to understand our sun through heliophysics, through other planets um, and the solar system. But what people don't realize is that Earth is a planet, too. And by being able to launch satellites to, with their eyes tuned down at Earth, we can understand not only how our own planet is changing, but use that as an analog for how we can understand potentially life on other planets. And that's really what we're trying to do here at NASA.
1: Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I spend a lot of time. Uh, I, I chair NASA's Earth Science Advisory Committee at the headquarters level. And it is amazing that people just don't realize the breadth of the NASA program, the, the satellites missions, the models, the various data sets that are used to study the third planet from the sun, which I argue is probably the most planet, important planet that we should be understanding since it's the one that we're going to be living on and uh, there's no plan B planet right now. So you are a part of that larger earth science division and the larger earth science mission uh, and you specifically in your own work, and we're going to go all over the place, but I want to start with your core expertise because you're an expert in landslides I mean, you, you didn't grow up in an area that had a lot of landslides. So, what, what is so interesting about landslides? How did you sort of vector into that part of earth science?
0: Well, I really was interested in disasters. Um, to In full disclosure, I think chaos and trying to figure out how we can use information and data to understand and manage extreme situations is, is really exciting to me. Um, and so one of the things that I learned when I was in graduate school, so I went to undergrad um, and studied geosciences and then went straight to graduate school to study natural disasters. And as I was doing some analysis, I realized that there really wasn't a whole lot of studies is looking at landslides, even though they kill thousands of people each year and affect millions and cause billions and billions of dollars in damages. And so my goal um, through graduate school and now in my career at NASA is to figure out how we can take different Earth observations. So looking at satellite precipitation, topography, how steep the slopes are, how the land might be changing, and many other variables to model and estimate landslides around the world.
1: Yeah, we're talking with Dr. Dalia Kirschbaum, who's a research physical scientist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. Uh, she also, just congratulation, passed her 10-year anniversary at Goddard, so that's a, big kudos for that. She's the Disaster Response Coordinator for Goddard Space Flight Center, and she's the Global uh, Precipitation Measurement Mission Associate Deputy Project Scientist for Applications, and that's a mission that I actually served as Deputy Project Scientist on uh, for a time during my tenure at, at Goddard. So we're talking landslides. Let's just geek out. We like to geek out from time to time on the podcast. Let's just geek out. What's the difference between a landslide or, and a mudslide, or are they the same thing?
0: That's a great question. I get that a lot. And we can give, I'll give a landslides 101 tutorial. So based on a study done in the 80s, um, what they said was the beginning of the word is the process, is the type of material and the end of the word is the process. So we have a mud that slides, we have debris that flows, we have snow, that's an avalanche. And so they're just different types of material, whether it be mud or rocks or a combination of earth and and other materials, and then the mechanism by which it moves. So that is how things get classified. But often in the community, we just use landslides as the catch-all term for mudslides, debris flows, rock avalanches, et cetera, even though there's more granularity to that.
1: Well, let's geek out on the geography of landslides. Are are parts of the world or the planet more susceptible? I know in the introduction, we mentioned places like the Caribbean, for example, or Central America. But I, I know, because I'm familiar with your work, that you are monitoring landslides all over the planet. So where are we most likely to find landslides?
0: That's right. By being able to have a global perspective, so using satellite data to look at the world as a whole, we can start to identify where we have some landslide hotspots. And so those are places where, not surprisingly, we have really steep mountains, we have heavy rainfall or really strong ground shaking from earthquakes. And so those are areas like the Pacific Northwest in the United States and California, all the way down into ca- the Caribbean, where you have active, um, active tectonics and also a lot of, of hurricanes and extreme rainfall, we have um, active activity in South America. But really, some of the biggest hotspot areas are in the Philippines, Indonesia, in, in Northern India, and in Nepal, where you have really active tectonics. You have active um, monsoon seasons that are causing millions of landslides each year. And so we're trying to figure out and model these processes to hopefully get a better handle on this distribution over time.
1: You mentioned a word there in your answer that I want to make sure our our Weather Geeks listeners understand. You mentioned the word monsoon. And I, I bring that up because I often find that that's a weather term that often gets misused. I think people often think of a monsoon as a lot of rainfall, which it does bring. But talk a little bit more about what monsoons really are.
0: Sure. Well, we have monsoons all over the planet, actually. Um, But monsoons are just seasons where you have increased rainfall or pulses of rainfall over specific areas because of the wind patterns that are occurring. So we have an Asian monsoon. We have an East Asian monsoon. And we even have a Southwest U.S. monsoon that happens during the summer where this really warm Gulf air intersects and brings moisture up to Mexico and California and the like. So those big, um, extreme precipitation patterns that kind of pulse rainfall are responsible for not only causing extreme events, like floods and landslides, but also providing key water and freshwater availability to agricultural regions in many of these areas. So they are a lifeblood to communities in Asia and the southeast U.S.
1: Yeah, it's interesting you talk about the monsoon as we're taping this podcast here on July 31st. uh, Parts of the southwestern U.S. I believe are in the midst of that sort of southwest monsoon. And that's really a key driver of the precipitation and rainfall for places like Las Vegas and parts of Arizona and Phoenix. And interestingly enough, uh, I was noting that uh, parts of Las Vegas are under attack from swarms of grasshoppers. And uh, I, I wrote something in Forbes talking about it's related to how much rainfall that they've been experiencing in that region. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad you sort of clarified that monsoons are really about the wind patterns and wind shifts that bring bring the rains. But uh, you'll often hear people refer to, oh, it's a monsoon out there because it's raining. So I always like to clarify that. Now, let's let's kind of stay with your mind modeling work with landslides. Now, I know you do some observational work, but how do you at NASA and your colleagues model and predict landslides?
0: Well, we do a couple, We do this a couple different ways. So one is we build we build models that allow us to combine different types of information to look at the patterns in where we might expect landslides. But fundamental to this is having data, having information on where landslides are to make sure that our models are getting it right. And so the ways that we do that, um, we look at reports. We look at media reports of where landslides are around the world, and we have a global database of over 11,000 events, based on media reports where that identify landslides. That data is publicly available. And we also recently, just last year, launched a citizen science or community science activity called Landslide Reporter, where we are encouraging anyone in the community to report landslides that they see in their area. Of course, make sure to be safe. That's the most important thing. But also that they might view in the media. And if you can report those, we can help grow our global database to improve models. So if you want to learn more about that, it's available at landslides.nasa.gov.
1: Yeah, make sure you check that out uh, on on the website there. Now, I was curious, are you familiar or were you familiar with the landslide that temporarily halted the Tour de France uh, race recently?
0: You know, I haven't been following that. But, you know, one of the things that happens during the summer is with these extreme storms, such as I'm just remembering the storm we had on on uh, July 8th in D.C., you get these extreme, very quick rainfall um, storms that can trigger Quick uh, landslides that move either rapidly, or they can move really slowly and cause significant damage as they deform the road. So I envision that's a that could be a big problem with the long road that needs to be maintained for the Tour de France. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad free?
1: And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm speaking with Dr. Dahlia Kirschbaum, who's a scientist at NASA who knows all all about landslides and lots of other things that we're going to talk about, too. By the way, that, that landslide I mentioned, uh, the Tour de France, uh, as you know, that's a, uh, an annual bike race through the much of the Alps. And not only was there significant rainfall, there was also significant hail that occurred with that particular storm that caused the landslide. So it was a really interesting case there. We're talking with Dahlia about how you model landslides. And she mentioned that there are some opportunities for you to get involved if you live particularly in regions that exp- Experience landslides. Now, are you modeling where, when, and how the landslides form, or is there just one particular facet of a landslide that you can actually model?
0: Well, right now we're really focused on fast moving landslides that are. Triggered by rainfall Um, And so those are the most frequent Types of events around the world Um, They tend to be um, some of the ones That occur during the summer Monsoon seasons as well as the hurricane Seasons but our research is advancing Which is very exciting and so We're going to be moving into understanding How earthquakes can Trigger landslides and this is a community That I'm looking forward to um, Getting into and we're also Going to be moving into not only The hazard so the natural Natural phenomena, But how that impacts people. So the exposure, what roads, what infrastructure like buildings or critical facilities like hospitals may be in exposed areas for landslides. So that's areas of active research that we hope to work with the international community to better inform.
1: Now, one of the things that that strikes me about your research and your work, Dahlia, is that you are doing basic earth science research that actually has a connection to societal applications. So I'm curious, is your modeling work or your satellite based estimations of landslides, are those being coordinated and used by others like other federal agencies, disaster response teams, et cetera?
0: It is. And so one of the really exciting things that we've done recently is we're working at many different scales. So we work at the global scale with groups like the Pacific Disaster Center that provides disaster alerts for all different types of events around the world. We're looking locally and regionally. And one of the local projects that we have is working with the city of Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. And so they've actually taken our model and customized it to the city and operationalized it which means that Every day or more than more than once a day, they are running the model that we're calling the you know the model for Rio that provides information to civil protection and other people to better understand where landslides may be affected across or may be occurring across the city. And so this is an evolving project. We're working to improve it, but it's really exciting to have this type of information and operational use at the city level to make decisions.
1: Yeah, and I think that's so important because people People oftentimes may not really realize what NASA's up to, and they're like, oh, they're doing all these sort of costly, expensive science experiments that don't affect lives. But this is just one of many examples. Can you talk, for example, I mean, I know this is a little bit off from what you do, but can you talk a little bit about some of the other NASA applications areas uh, where NASA's Earth Sciences data and models are being used just to help society?
0: Absolutely. So, you know, when we have so many Earth observations, both satellite data from over two dozen satellites orbiting Earth, we have model products, and we even have airborne information and ground-based information to basically move this data to inform decision making. And so NASA has a whole applied sciences program in which we look at different areas. So, for example, we look at water resources or water quality. How can we take observations like soil moisture and and grace, which is looking at kind of the water anomalies, the differences in water under the ground to better understand agricultural productivity? We also have an ecological forecasting uh, group who are looking at how we can apply things like precipitation or vegetation change to understand how um, how our uh, ecology, how mangroves, might be evolving or affected by climate change. We have a capacity-building program where we build capacity and work with local to national to international groups to both train and transfer knowledge to inform decision-making at the local level. And one of the programs I work most closely with is the Disasters Program. And so that the goal of that program, in addition to research, is to take and provide actionable satellite data and products to inform the disaster life cycle, everything from pre-event understanding and awareness through the actual event itself and th- and then on to uh, eventual mitigation and recovery and resilience. And so I've been involved in how we can streamline the data, make it available in formats that are useful for everybody from the U.S. Army to the U.N. to local groups on the ground. And that's been really rewarding to try and expand the use of these free and open data for those types of applications.
1: We're talking with Dahlia Kirschbaum, who's a research physical scientist in the Hydrological Sciences Lab at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. She's also the Global Precipitation Measurement Mission Associate Deputy Project Scientist for Applications. And we're going to talk all about GPM later in the podcast. But I want to talk about your role as Disaster Response Coordinator for NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. What exactly does that entail? And I, I, I have a feeling it's it's more than just landslides, right?
0: That's right. So I do. I'm fortunate to have a lot of different hats that I wear as part of um, as part of my job at NASA. So landslide research is one of the exciting areas of research we're exploring. But disaster coordination is another place where we can look not just at one disaster, but across all of the different types of disasters that affect us here in the U.S. and around the world to figure out how we can bring different satellite observations, um, such as. You you know where there might be power outages. And we have satellites that can look at night lights, and after a disaster such as Hurricane Maria, we can not only see where we have power outages, but how the power has been regenerated. Or you know, and that data is critical for groups that were providing aid and you know administering power stations to help improve the recovery effort during the storm. We have other things looking at land cover change and understanding how that might impact communities in terms of deforestation and others and and how that could affect flash flooding or, or landslides later on. Um, And so there's a lot of exciting um, data products that we have that can help to enable and support operational response communities that are in the thick of responding to disasters.
1: Yeah, that's so fascinating. And I have a feeling that when you tell people that you work at NASA, they probably don't think of any of that when they think about what you do. Is there a lot of red tape that you have to deal with when coordinating between federal, state and local governments?
0: I think it's important to note that NASA is not an operational agency. So we don't have the operational mandate to respond to earthquakes or hurricanes, right? For earthquakes, it's the U.S. Geological Survey. For hurricanes, it's the National Hurricane Center, National Weather Center, and NOAA. And so what our role is specifically is is to enable and provide what we call actionable information for awareness or situational awareness during events. And so we have excellent relationships with other federal agencies, but we also look beyond our borders. You know, weather doesn't have any borders. We need to understand where our weather is coming from and how a storm that may impact Mexico will ultimately, if it moves northward, impact the United States. And so we really are working across a broad range of, of groups to help and provide satellite information for them to make decisions on the ground to save lives and property.
1: Wow. So, so fascinating. And we just want to thank you for what you're doing for the nation. Um, many people don't realize the valuable civil servants across the the agencies that are doing things to make life better on this planet, and particularly in the United States as well. Now, you have a lot of hats that you wear, Dahlia. Uh, you're a researcher. I mean, you're a disaster coordinator. You're a liaison on missions, et cetera. In terms of your typical work week or work day, are there things that you enjoy better than others? I mean, if you just could pick a day and do what you like the most, would you pick writing papers or digging through the literature or interacting with stakeholders?
0: That's a great question. I have to be honest. I like doing all of it. And I think that the thing that's exciting about the position that I'm in is that I get to do everything and have a balance. So I love these types of things when I can talk to you. I can talk to users about how our data is being used. I can have a conversation with the city of Rio to plan a, um, a, a conference that we're ha- hosting together to advance our capabilities of, of using Earth observations at the city level. And I can meet with research teams to figure out what is the cutting edge. How can we push the bar both technologically and research-wise to really better understand understand how landslides might be changing our landscape but transfer the models transfer the data to those that will make decisions on the ground so um, you know there's obviously things that are less exciting but overall I think that being able to have the flexibility to work on many different things um, including planning future missions which is also something I'm working on right now to guide how NASA will observe our earth in the next 10 years, all of those things are critical to advancing NASA's mission, but also are really fun to do every day.
1: No, I know you do landslide work, and you, that involves observations and modeling. But do you ever get into the field, do any kind of field work?
0: You know – when I chose my g- career of remote sensing of landslides, one of the things that maybe I didn't think too much about was the fact that fieldwork is quite sparse because you're looking from satellite images from space. So unfortunately, I don't do uh, much field work, but I do engage with a lot of other teams that do extensive fieldwork. In fact, right now, I have a colleague at the University of Michigan who's in the field nearly every year in Nepal mapping landslides and understanding the dynamics on the ground. And so I guess I get to live vicariously through my colleagues in their experiences in the field.
1: And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and we're speaking with a NASA expert on landslides, Dr. Dahlia Kirschbaum. And full disclosure, Dahlia and I are colleagues. We've known each other for some time now, so it's really awesome to be able to have her on the Weather Geeks podcast. And I actually want to shift the discussion a bit now into an area of commonality, which is the Global Precipitation Measurement Mission, or GPM, Dahlia, give the Weather Geeks listeners a 101 on the GPM mission.
0: Sure. Well, the Global Precipitation Measurement Mission, or GPM as we call it, is a partnership or co-led by NASA and the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency we call JAXA. And so it launched a satellite called the GPM Core Observatory in February of 2014. And that actually built on from a mission that you that you were working very closely with, um, which is the Tropical Rainfall Measuring Mission, which was launched in 1998. And so for nearly two decades, NASA has been providing excellent unprecedented rainfall es- um, estimates from space um, to look at everything from light rainfall in the in um, the higher latitudes all the way to extreme storms in the in the tropics and mid latitudes um, it has two Specific instruments on board, actually the most advanced instruments to measure precipitation from space, one, which is really cool, is an active radar. So similar to when we drive a car and the signal, a police radar bounces off the car and comes back and it tells the policeman how fast the car is going, the same type of technology in a different frequency is used to actually have an active signal bouncing off precipitation and and get a sense of what the distribution of rain is all the way from the top of the atmosphere down to the ground. And the other instrument is kind of like an x-ray. If that if the radar is like a cat scan, the um, the microwave instrument is like an x-ray, which tells us the difference between light rain, heavy rain, and snow, just like an x-ray can tell us the difference between ligaments, bones, and muscle.
1: So you are uh, you are talking about microwaves in the same sense that we use microwave energy in our our ovens if, to heat up food but this is a different application. So the radar as you noted is really an active sensor sending out a pulse but these this microwave capability that you mentioned it's not sending out any pulses of microwave energy or any other type of energy. It's Sensing energy that's either being emitted or scattered from ice and water, is that right?
0: That's right. So um, in the visible spectrum, right? So our, our eyes are passive sensors, right? We can see the difference between green and and blue and red because of our eyes passively um, observing it from the light that's emitted off of these different bodies. And so that's the same with precipitation. It actually, the satellite, pass- the instrument passively observes the difference that in uh, energy between the light rainfall, the heavy rain, the ice and the snow. And from that, we can actually Infer, um, and we have models to tell us whether or not it's heavy rain or it's light. It's light snow, for example.
1: Yeah, it's a really fascinating uh, concept. I often, uh, in, in classes at the University of Georgia, I'll, I'll ask students to think about what happens if they put a piece of ice in a microwave oven or if they put a piece of uh, a bowl of water in a microwave oven. And the water, typically, if you turn it on, will start, start boiling uh, much more rapidly than the ice will start melting because ice tends to reflect or scatter um, microwave energy, whereas the water absorbs it. And so those basic principles can be utilized, as you just described, to leverage and measure rain. Fall from space, but here comes the million dollar question, Dahlia that I often got during my tenure at NASA. Why in the world does NASA and all these other space agencies need to launch this system of satellites to measure rainfall? Why can't we just use rain gauges and radar on the ground?
0: Well, we just came out with a study a couple years ago that if you take all of the rain gauges in the world and you put them together, they only fit into two basketball courts. And so radar, it provides more coverage. But even in the United States, there are areas in the West, for example, that we don't have coverage from radar. And think about all the ocean, right? The majority of our surface area does not have radar information as well. So satellites really provide the only global view of precipitation. And so we look at satellites. Satellites um, such as those that we have from NOAA that provide continuous views of the Earth from an orbit that's much further away. And NASA works with NOAA to build and, and launch those satellites. But also we have satellites that are down further down in an orbit. So basically the GPM satellite sits at an orbit above us from the distance from Washington, D.C. to New York. So we're in a low Earth orbit. And from that vantage point, we can actually observe precipitation in a much different way. And that provides new research and science findings that help improve weather forecasts from the operational agencies like NOAA to make our weather forecast every day more accurate.
1: And, And that's an important point, because although we may not live over the ocean or we may not live over the Andes mountain range. Uh, that rainfall that's falling needs to go into the weather forecast, climate models, hydrological models to improve global predict- prediction. So that's why you really need that global coverage. Now, I, I talk a little bit more though about sort of the 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 constellation because you mentioned the GPM core satellite, but it's it isn't it correct that they're also just a it's also using a constellation of other satellites that have some of these similar capabilities to to get at this global um, measurement of rainfall since the satellite itself is not at the geosynchronous orbit, so we can't see half the globe at one time. It's in low-Earth orbit, so don't you have to leverage constellations of other satellites
0: That's right. I'm so glad that you brought that up. So one of the unique characteristics of GPM is in addition to the core satellite that that NASA launched, it leverages international satellites and instruments from partners around the world. And so nearly about 10 different satellites and instruments are used to create a blended picture of precipitation around the world. And so having international agreements and collaboration is fundamental to being able to provide a global picture of rain and snow everywhere around the world every 30 minutes. And so by being able to look at satellites that are going over the poles, satellites that are more geared towards going over the tropics, and then the GPM satellite that goes from the Arctic, that observes from the Arctic to the Antarctic Circle, we can create that global view in a much more seamless and accurate way.
1: Yeah, and I know that there are some core objectives related to weather prediction, climate prediction, and hydrological prediction. There's also quite a bit of scientific research with the mission related to improving the way we measure rainfall from space, the algorithms, validating uh, whether the satellite-based measurements are accurate using ground validation uh, campaigns and field campaigns. But talk to us also about the other applications that GPM offers, particularly in things like hurricane analysis, hurricane forecasting, and others.
0: Sure. So I mean because the the satellite precipitation data knows no boundaries, also applications don't have boundaries. We have communities across the spectrum that are leveraging, are using this type of information. I can give a couple examples from weather forecasting, for example, there was a recent many the GPM microwave imager, or GMI, which is on board the core satellite, is used to identify, for example, where a storm might be, a hurricane may be making a transition from having a dual eyewall to a single eyewall or vice versa. And that type of information, in addition to the vertical information on where huge convective towers may be forming in storms, we call them hot towers, those are providing important clues into how the storm may be intensifying. or changing its shape and potentially changing wind speeds or changing precipitation. And so GPM has been critical to the forecast community to better understand those types of developments.
1: Yeah, I want to anchor there. I want to stay there for a moment because a question that I often get is that why are the hurricane track forecasts so good, relatively speaking, and have improved over the last several decades, but yet there seems to be a struggle with the intensity forecast. We saw this, for example, with Hurricane Michael in 2018 rapid intensification right before landfall. And one of the big challenges with intensity forecast in the models with hurricanes is understanding those inner processes in the eyewall. You heard Dr. Kirschbaum talk about uh, the eyewall replacement cycle and uh, Weather Geeks executive uh, production colleague, um, Dr. Matt Sidkowski, is an expert on eyewall replacement cycle. So I hope I do do it justice here. But when we see these eyewall replacement cycles, Those are critical clues about the sort of life cycle and perhaps uh, intensity of the storm. You also heard Dr. Kirschbaum talk about these hot towers. Talk, Talia, about the importance of those hot towers, because I want to dig deep and geek out on that a little bit, because those hot towers, those are the thunderstorms, deep thunderstorms in the eyewall of the hurricane, and they're releasing energy. Why, Why is that energy so important to the hurricane?
0: Well, I think it's important to note that because we have this active system that can look layer by layer through the atmosphere, for the first time, we can actually look at these structures with two different frequencies of, of energy to understand the dynamics of these really strong convective systems. And so just one example is with Hurricane Maria, um, GPM um, had an overpass of that storm as it was about to intensify. And we observed these hot towers, these huge convective storms within in the eyewall of the storm that reached up to fifteen kilometers. That's that's higher than planes fly. And so in typically, and so the by being able to understand the mechanisms and where these Intense storms are starting to get more intense, so there's not conditions like winds or cold water that are potentially going to cause them to dissipate. These are really important clues to in, to indicate rapid intensification. And in fact, with Hurricane Maria, right after we observed those strong convective towers, the storm rapidly intensified from a Category 1 to a Category 4 storm in less than 24 hours. And so this is still very much in research mode But I think that these types of internal dynamics, as you said, to understand what causes the storm to move, but ultimately what causes the storm to get more or less intense, are areas that we are working very closely with the operational communities and in our research to better understand, to improve those types of forecasts.
1: Yeah, and if you read some of the National Weather Service or National Hurricane Center discussions as they're monitoring storms, you will often hear them mention some of the GMI or... Or, or before that, the trim microwave imager as helping them with aspects of the storm. Any other sort of applications? I know you have your ear to the ground on this as in your role. Any other sort of GPM-related applications that even surprised you that, oh, wow, we're able to do that?
0: Yeah, one of them was about disease prediction. So for an example, cholera is a waterborne to bacterial disease that um, there's over million, millions, 1.3 to 4 million cases per year, and it causes, you know, 20 to 100,000 deaths each year. But cholera is somewhat predictable if you look at a broad sense. And so in order to predict an outbreak, you need information on warm temperatures, on if there's been heavy rainfall, and then if there's water insecurity. And so a lot of those variables we can actually extract from satellites. So um, a a colleague of mine, um, uh, Dr. Antar Jutla, actually has a prediction system that uses GPM data along with temperature data from an an, um, um, mm-hmm. And data from other satellites and and models to combine it and tackle when we can forecast the risk of malaria. And so there's been groups like the Center for Disease Control and others that are using this information to better anticipate in the weeks prior to an outbreak when we might see cholera outbreaks around the world.
1: That's just fascinating. And I hope the listeners appreciate that this is just one of several NASA Earth Sciences missions that certainly is about science and research but also about application to society. As we kind of draw to a close here, are there any other research endeavors or future missions that you are particularly excited about?
0: Well, um, we are actually talking about what's next after GPM. So um, as I'm sure you know, the Decadal Survey for NASA came out in 2017. And that that essentially is a group that's run by the National Academies of scientists around the world that help to understand and, and, and provide a roadmap for where NASA should focus its Earth science missions and ob- observations going forward. So the mission that I'm involved in, or the uh, study, I should say, is looking at how we can use different satellites and different instruments to look at aerosols, clouds, convection and precipitation in a new way. And so that mission isn't going to be launched till later in the 2020s. We don't even know what it's going to look like yet. But we just had a workshop last week where we brought together the operational weather community from around the world, the air quality forecasting community to talk about what the needs would be. How can they raise the bar in their modeling efforts to improve their forecasts? What excites them? What what works with the current activities we have both at nasa and around the world and so having that conversation so early in the process will really um, ensure that the types of measurements we ultimately are able to make from these future missions get used by the communities right away and so that's yet another way that we're trying to transition and use actionable data from satellites to inform decisions on the ground
1: Yeah. And I want to say, as someone that was right there at the beginning when we started developing the GPM mission, it takes many years to go from the scientific research questions and objectives to the engineering, to the design and testing of the satellite, and ultimately launching it and taking data. So these are very large scale projects. And we we thank everyone there at NASA, the engineers, the scientists, all of the staff, all of the contractors from private companies, because it takes quite a bit of effort to get these missions into space. Dahlia, is there anywhere people... People can follow you or the missions that you're involved in on social media or on the internet?
0: Sure. It's social media. You can follow us, follow us at NASA rain. Um, and that has information on all of the different activities that, um, that are, um, taking place with respect to GPM and the hurricane community. Um, We also have a site if you're interested to learn more about disasters, it's disasters.nasa.gov. And that can tell you more about how disaster um, events are transpiring and and what types of information are relevant. And then, of course, I have to make a plug for my new citizen science effort. So if you go to landslides.nasa.gov, you can download all of our data. You can link to all of our models, which are all open source. And you can contribute your own reports and be part of science and building a an open community to advance our understanding of landslides and how rainfall causes them.
1: Wow. So there's a lot of information and some ways that you can get engaged. Dahlia, I want to thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard. And thank you again, the listener, for joining us each and every week and continue to listen and subscribe to the podcast. And we'll see you next time on the Weather Geeks podcast.